Well, good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. As Alan told, told you this morning, we're starting a new study, and we're excited about the study. We're excited about the timing of the study. Just to, isn't it exciting that God speaks to us through his word? I mean, that's, that's something that we should always stand in awe of and grateful for. Um, this, this series is going to be, is, is called Changing Kingdoms, Unchanging King. Um, and so as you're, you're looking for the book of Daniel, um, maybe it's been a while, you may be new to your, to your Old Testament, so I'll give you a chance to turn there. I also want to take a minute to express thankfulness, and I think you probably do too, to the gifts that God has given us in Hugh and Alan and Eric. Um, haven't we been blessed in the teaching of God's word over these last four weeks through these, these four, these four, th- three, three men, three men, four weeks, three men. Uh, it was so, so good. Been so, th- so thankful for that. So thankful for God's wisdom in calling churches to be led by a plurality of elders. And I hope you experienced why that is such a blessing. Uh, in the teaching and preaching ministry over these last few weeks. So thankful for these men and for you as a church family who want our church to be built and centered on the teaching and preaching of God's word. Just, we just want to say thank you for being that kind of church. Um, there's just, it's just not the way every church is, sadly. Um, and we're so thankful that you are, are that way. So let's turn to God's holy and inspired and inerrant word this morning in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king 
who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them, all of them, among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, Heavenly Father, we we turn to a book that is familiar to many in many ways. But Lord, we ask that you would give our eyes, give us fresh eyes for familiar things. Give us gospel eyes for the book of Daniel. God, we we want to see you, the king of kings, as the star of this book, as the center of this book, as the one who deserves all the glory in this book. And then help us to see the grace you give to your people to live faithfully for you, even in the midst of the worst of times. Oh Lord, we need you. We love you. We ask that you'd speak to us and change us and empower us for obedience and a life without compromise. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it took some time to determine what the name of this series on Daniel would be. One possibility that came just really quickly to mind was no compromise. That would have been a nice title, huh? Remember, it's memorable. No compromise. Reminds me of Keith Green. Took me back to my Keith Green days. Uh, no compromise. What a great title for the book. You should have seen the logo that Eric made. So Eric's doing graphic arts for us as well. And, and man, he had this, and he, I think you may have seen the, the lion. There was, Eric found this picture of the most majestic looking lion of all the lions of, of lionhood. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was this lion, and I think it's just half of his face. 
Eric is really artsy, and you know, I just, I, it's just amazing what these guys who are creative can do, because it was just poignant, it was gripping, and next to the lion's face, it said, no compromise. It was awesome. It was awesome, and we didn't use it. <laughs> and Eric's probably going, man, Billy is so hard to work with and, and work for. It would have been a great title for the book of Daniel, and we're going to find wonderful examples of what it means to not compromise God's commandments. We're going to find wonderful examples of what it means to not compromise God's mission in the face of the seductions of the world and in the face of the persecutions of the world. We're going to look at all of that. There's cause for us to highlight this because I think you would agree with me that during all of the political turmoil, changing of presidents, coronavirus, social injustices that we've experienced over the last few years, there's indeed been far too much compromising. And I don't, listen guys, when I say that, I, I don't have to look past my mirror. I, I, would you, would you, would you, let's, let's don't look at like a physical mirror. Let's, let's look at the mirror of God's word. If you held the mirror of God's word up to you, over these last, I don't know, 24, 36 months, last several years, are you real excited about your no compromise kind of life? I, I can't say that I'm real excited. There have been too many ways that uh, compromise invaded my world or I allowed it. <laughs> so, notice, look, isn't it, it's, I was, I was, that was sneaky, wasn't it? How, how compromise invaded my world as though I'm a victim. No, I'm not a victim. I'm an unfaithful man. I'm a man who's not as concerned as he should be about how to live in Babylon without being a Babylonian. How about you? So there's a reason for us to look at the theme of no compromise. I, I, there's a reason for that. The reason I struggled with whether we should use no compromise was at the end of the day, I did not want to risk your thinking that the book of Daniel was more about what you do for God than what he does for you. So that's why I veered away from an amazing picture and logo and all of that because I just didn't want the, the, the accent mark, the, the, the uh, accentuation mark to be after your name or after my name. It's just too easy to allow books of the Bible that contain historical narratives that describe heroic events done by God's people throughout history and we reduce them to moralistic stories that have no really power, they don't have power. Moralism has no power to save the soul. Moralism has no power to, to give us strength, to, to stand in the face of, of, of a threat, to lose our job, or, or, or even worse, maybe lose our lives if we don't march to the beat of the Babylonians. Moralism's not gonna help us. Unbelievers know the story of Daniel. They, they, they know it in terms of just moralistic stories. How many, how many kids grow up learning 
about Daniel and about Shadrach and about Meshach and about Abednego, but they don't, they don't see them in the, in the redemptive storyline of Scripture. They, they just see them as, as, as adventure stories with no greater power than the stories that Mother Goose has to tell. Oh, you guys, Daniel has so much more for us than that. It's, it's not just a book to get you to do better or try harder. It's not just that kind of book. There was a children's song written about the book. It's a fairly old song about the book of Daniel called Dare to Be, a Dan- Dare to be Daniel. Any, anybody, any older people ever hear? Dare to be Daniel. It's not a bad song at all. Here's some of the lyrics. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Not a bad song. Not bad encouragements. But is the goal at the end of the day to be like Daniel? Or is the goal to study Daniel, to learn and know about God's sovereign rule over all things and over all people, and to learn about God's covenant faithfulness to his people that results in people being empowered by God's grace to then live faithfully to him, right? So you see what we did there. It wasn't just that, David, no compromise. Come on. Come on, let's get in this. No, it's, David, do you see how covenantally faithful God is to you? And that's why, brother, you can be faithful to him. That's why. That's why. And that's what I think we're going to see. In fact, I I changed even the the sermon length and what we're going to cover this morning because I, I really want you to see the accent mark of this passage, and it's really just in the first two verses. Um, We want to learn to be faithful because we too are exiles. We're living in a seductive and cruel world, a world that is not our, our best home. It's not our truest home. It's not our final home. We don't want to study Daniel and see Daniel as the star of the story. And that's why we called the series Changing Kingdoms, Unchanging King, because it highlights God's sovereign rule over all earthly powers, both now and in the future. And if you need to, you put any authority figure in there. So, we're, you know, so we, we can talk presidents and governors and mayors and all of these things. You can also throw in employers and you can also call in people in authority, school teachers or principals. God has power over all earthly rulers, both now and in the future. And this book highlights the sovereign grace that God gives his people to live faithfully for his glory and purposes us to enable us. He gives us this ability to not compromise our faith or our mission regardless of what earthly king is on the throne or which president is in the, United, in the White House or which boss is signing your paychecks. Our main point this morning is God will give us all the grace we need to be faithful to live for his glory and mission in a world that is not our true home. That's going to be where we're going to go with this. And so I've given you the outline that's really going to extend into next week. Um, So you can keep that in your Bible. We'll give you another one next week if you forget. So the first point this morning is this. God gives grace to be faithful to him through trials and discipline. 
We see that in verses 1 and 2. You could even say judgment in this as well. God gives grace to be faithful to him when, when he's judging, when, there's, when, when God brings trials into our life, when God brings discipline into his people's lives. <clears throat> so let's get a little bit into the, into the storyline of Daniel. Daniel is, is really divided in half. Um, Daniel 1 through 6 are the historical narratives that illustrate the grace that God gives his people to live faithfully to him even when they're living as exiles in a foreign land where they have been essentially taken as prisoners of war. So really, you guys, we're kind of, we're kind of wimps in so many ways. Um, we, we, we can't even understand what it would be like to be prisoners of war, taken to live as citizens, and what some, some of the commentators essentially call a police state. Aren't you glad we're not living in a police state? There's a lot of problems in our world, but it's nothing like what these guys were facing. And that's what's so inspirational about this book because it tells about the steel that God can put in a believer's backbone and yet the tender heart that that believer can still have as he, as he lives as an example of Christ, even as an exile. Um, chapters 1 through 4, are, you're going to start to see the changing king, kingdoms in this, just even in the first chapter. It, it details events taking place under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar really revitalized the Babylonian Empire. Sometimes I think we think that he was just the key and that, that Babylon was really just revolved around him. No, the Babylonian Empire at this point was about a thousand years old. But it had declined significantly until Nebuchadnezzar revitalized it, mainly through military prowess and cruelty. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire grew to the largest in history. Not just militarily, but he also really did a big job of, of trying to, to make them the cultural center of all things as well. And he used the wealth that he got from, from conquering nations in order to rebuild and revitalize Babylon. Babylon was considered to be one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Vivid colors, much gold and silver, a ton of wealth, prosperity abounded. There was a magnificent palace that Nebuchadnezzar lived in. There were the hanging gardens of Babylon. You may have heard of those. Some, some of the historians say that there were up to 50 temples. It was a religious place. It's just that it was pagan religion. Some of those temples were 300 feet tall. They particularly liked to bring into the temple of his God. Nebuchadnezzar really loved to do this. Idols or figures or implements of worship of other nations so that he could declare that my God is better than your God. Wasn't that, what, what was I'm, I'm really bringing back the oldies today, aren't I? Was that a hot dog commercial or something? I don't remember what that was from. But Nebuchadnezzar loved to try to rub the noses of the nations in the fact that their gods weren't good enough or strong enough or powerful enough. And we're going to come back to that as we close today because I think there's something in there that you'll see the gospel in. And as great as his king and his kingdom was, <laughs> isn't it interesting? Nebuchadnezzar too had an expiration date. He faded. Kingdom went on. There was the reign of Belshazzar. So we're going to study about him in chapter 5. And then Belshazzar faded. 
And then in chapter 6, we're going to read about the reign of Darius, the Mede, because then the Medes had come in, and now kingdoms are changing again, and again and again. And then chapters 7 through 12 are filled with visions and prophecies. And and it's, it's apocalyptic, you guys. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of these kind of things. And I promise you, we're not, we're not going to try to use Daniel to give you a date when the Lord's going to return. We're not going to do that. What we're, what we're going to hope and pray is that you'll see the majesty of the living God. And that, that through generation after generation after generation, he reigns and he has no rivals. And he can be trusted in even in your deepest sorrow. That's what we pray will come as we, as we look at future things and how Christ is the king of all kings. And we'll see that in verses 7 through 12. All of this to give us grace, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to live as exiles in a world that threatens, like Luther said, to undo us with either the pleasures of seduction or the fears of persecution. So let me, let me just ask you, right now, here we are, I'm, I'm, I'm not calling the United States Babylon, we're just calling it living as exiles in a fallen, broken world. Where have you been most tempted lately? Have you been most tempted with the seductions of the world? And by that, I'm not just talking sexual. I'm not talking about those things. Have you, been, have you been most tempted to compromise maybe some of your values, compromise God's word and commands, compromise the mission of God because of desiring things of the world? And the world's been holding those things over your head. And that could, whether it's a job or a salary increase or where you live or how you live. I mean, it's, there's just so many ways the world, even the kind of toothpaste you use. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. We live in the most seductive time because of internet and all of those kind of things. Or maybe you've been facing more of a persecution kind of thing. Maybe some of you experienced maybe some rejection from your family because because you're taking a stand, you're becoming a little too dogmatic as a Christian. Listen, you've got to live and let live. I mean, be a Christian, but come on. Maybe, maybe just with all that's going on in the world, I've talked to some of the men in our church, and some of the guys have said, and I'm sure that this is probably true of ladies in the workplace as well, but some of the guys have said that it's, and I, I used to work for Shell Oil Company, and, and uh, so I, I was in human resource management, and I know policies, and I know how, how companies can, can start to be conformed to worldliness and take on the worldly values. And somehow companies now have to be social justice warriors and, and all the things and, and the pressure that that can put on a man or woman to compromise their walk with Jesus. Well, Daniel's going to come in so powerfully for us and give us so much help in those kind of things. Just to remind us that the New Testament reminds us that we too are exiles in this world. And you have those, I put those in your notes. Philippians 3 verses 18 through 20 says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's how the citizens of Babylon live. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Peter accentuates this just in chapter 1 and, of, and verse 1 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. What, what, what two words to put together? Yeah. Yeah, another, I, I can't remember who said it this way. They called it that Christians are the selected rejected. Chosen exiles, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want to stop there for a minute and just to, to remind us, we have dual citizenship, guys. We are called to live in a way that points other people to the excellencies of Christ as we seek to excel as noble and godly citizens in this world. We're going to see some things about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that, that really they could be voted employee of the year living in Babylon. I mean, it shouldn't, I think, I think we're missing some of that. And we'll, I'm not going to get into it in detail today because it's going to come to us just through the unfolding of the text. But I, I don't know that we're, we're, we're talking enough about what does it mean to show the excellencies of Christ in the excellence of my work ethic. What does it mean for a pagan boss to put trust in a believing employee? To, that, that, that I'm living in such a way that, that he would consider me trustworthy. We're going to come across these things. This, this whole thing of dual citizenship is so important for a believer to understand. Even more, we're, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We live in the world currently, but, but we're far from our truest, best, and lasting home. This dual citizenship, so this is, this is where I think believers really get in trouble when we want to just jump into social justice. Let's jump into social justice. I, I, I think before you jump there, there's some things that we need to prepare you for. And that's one, understanding your dual citizenship as a citizen of this world and a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's really the starting point theologically. It's, it's the starting point where we learn to engage the culture and we learn to engage politics through a biblical lens. Let me, let me go into that a little bit more. We, we tend to want simple answers to really complex questions about living in a fallen world. Listen, wouldn't it be easy? Don't you sometimes just want it this way? I, listen, you guys are... <clears throat> I so admire you guys. You, this church, by and large, you are way smarter than me. I may, I may could win a game against a, a five-year-old, but, but I'm not too smart. I, I need simplicity. I want simple answers. Simple answers would look like this. Wouldn't it be easy if we could just choose, okay, you know what? Here's what we do as Christians. We just always resist. Yeah. Some of the guys going, yeah, that's my kind of Christianity. Yeah. That's what we do as believers. We just resist. We're skeptical about everything. We're cynical about everything. Don't trust any authority. In the name of Christ. Wow. Be easy, wouldn't it? I want to, be, I want to encourage us there. I, I, listen, I'm, I, I'm, I put, you know, I get loud. I think some of that comes out in our tone with people. I mean, we, we, we may think we're, we're speaking prophetically to the culture when what they're hearing is just obnoxiousness and arrogance. 
and we're disguising it in. We're strong and we're resisting. You're going to be called to resist. So, so some of you got. <laughs> Sometimes you should know the thoughts, all these thoughts that come through my head because I'm starting to go, now there may be a couple guys in the church that are going, well, wait, don't you have to resist? Yes, yes, I'm just somewhere now. Are you kidding me? We're going to look at resistance in this book, aren't we? But we're looking at resistance in this book, but it's not always resist, but it's also not always, oh, just give in. Just submit, you know, and then isn't that the thing that there's been church wars going on? This kills my heart. Why is the church dividing against itself about, no, we need to resist. No, we need to submit to authority. It's always submit to authority. No, it's always resist and we just fight. No, it takes a close walk with Jesus to know when to resist and when to submit, doesn't it? It's not just one or the other. And I think, guys, Daniel's going to really help us with that story. How do we live as elect exiles in a world broken by sin? Not just these, these issues of governance. How do we live as elect exiles in a world of sickness and war, financial crisis, spousal and child abuse, fatherless families, rampant divorce, poverty, unimaginable numbers of abortions, racism, gender confusion, addiction, the list goes on and on. How do we live as faithful to the Lord and his glory and his mission when there's so much brokenness around us? I believe Daniel's going to be a huge help and encouragement to us to teach us how to live exemplary lives as citizens and as employees and as students. Maybe if you're you're considering maybe getting involved in local government and all of these kinds of things, I I would applaud that. I think we need more devoted Christians with a gospel-centered view of, of governance. We need those people. How to live exemplary citizens, yet also give us the wisdom and strength to know when to say no. You see, again, why I kind of moved away from no compromise as the keynote. Keep moving. Daniel takes place about 600 years before the coming of Christ. About 400 years after David and Solomon ruled, God had promised in Isaiah 39. So I'm going to ask you to, to go back because it, it would just take more time. But I, go back and look in Isaiah 39, 2 Kings 20. Uh, you're going to see where God had promised that this was going to happen if Israel continued to live unfaithfully to him. They would experience his righteousness to be sure. They would experience discipline. There would be judgment. And they would be sent out of the promised land much like Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden. They'd be sent away from their home in Jerusalem and from their temple. Their exile to Babylon would come in several waves. And that's where verse 1 comes in. It tells of the first wave of exiles being brought back to Babylon. And Daniel and his three friends that we read about this morning were the first ones brought into captivity. So right away, here's what I want you to just notice. Let's do some work in the text now. This to kind of close the morning, just in our, our noses in the book. 
I want you to notice in verse 1 how the Holy Spirit had had this book written. I want you to notice it really puts the highlight on two kings. It, it, It right away talks about King Jehoiakim of Judah and King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it, and it puts them at, at odds with each other. It puts them as, as, as at fighting and in war. And King Nebuchadnezzar is going to have victory. And, and, and the king of Babylon is going to dictate and dominate. King Nebuchadnezzar will win. And thus, there you already see. You don't even have to get past verse 1. Changing kingdoms. Changing kingdoms. And if this is all we saw in verse 1 and 2 in this text, we would be without hope, wouldn't we? Because we'd simply see this as a national catastrophe. The once great kingdom of Israel was being badly defeated and conquered by a pagan king. Israel would have seen this as one of its darkest days. I don't know, in my lifetime, you know, we, you know if, if my dad was still alive, you know, those are those things, don't you wish some of your parents or your grandparents could still be alive and, so that they could kind of pull you up and say, son? <laughs> In my day, right? I mean, don't we need that? Because we can think that, oh, this is the worst of times. This is the worst of times. But I feel like that we've, we kind of are experiencing what it is to have a nation in crisis, aren't we? The moral decline of our nation is happening at a blink. It's, it's like you blink and it's de- declined 10 times more than it was before you blinked. It seems like a national crisis. Seems like dark days for the United States. I would remind you that the United States is not the eternal city. I mean, let's, we want to take a stand for Christ. We want to live as exemplary citizens. But we don't want to so grip onto our privileges as United States citizens that the United States is the God we serve and not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it is a catastrophe and we we hate all the fruit of all this confusion, all the sin that is coming out of this in our country. It's breaking our hearts. It is dark days. And it could be really easy to be, listen, I don't know, I, I hope you're actually pulling back from your intake of news. I mean, be informed to be sure. But don't be dominated by it. Because you know what it looks like? You know what it looks like to watch Fox or CNN or whatever the, the, the news things you watch? What it, what, it can, what it can just start looking like is Nebuchadnezzar wins, the good guys lose. It's just so easy for it to start happening like that. We want to see. Okay, so put your, put your eyes back in verse 2. Was Nebuchadnezzar the reason Jehoiakim lost the battle? What does it say? The Lord gave. The Lord gave. Oh, oh yeah, the unchanging king. Oh yeah. There's all these battles between changing kings with expiration dates. But there's an unchanging king who is doing powerful things even if they are as yet unseen as to their purposes and goal. 
He's the king that we need to pay most attention to throughout this book. Please, would you, would you do that with me? Would you, can we be devoted to say, God, let us see the true king in this book. Let us see the king of kings in this book. Let us see. Give us fresh eyes to see that. And so you begin to see even how, how chapter 1 is being outlined. Because in verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But it was the Lord gave. And you're going to be seeing that theme. In fact, in fact, I would ask you even to go back over this. You'll see it in the, the paper outline I gave you. But you can really see how that phrase, the Lord gave, is actually the outline of this chapter. And it's, it, you're going to see that in verses uh, 9 and verses 17. Because the Lord gave some other things in addition to the grace to learn how to live faithful when he brings trials and discipline into our lives. So it wasn't ultimately King Nebuchadnezzar that was in control of this. The king of kings is in control of this. If King Nebuchadnezzar is in control, there is no hope. If President Trump is in control, there is no hope. If President Biden is in control, there is no hope. But if the king of kings is in control, everybody smile. Everybody, can we all just do this? Whew. Hallelujah. The king of kings is in control. There is great hope. Even if, even if what he's doing to us looks like a national catastrophe, it's actually an expression of his sovereign grace in bringing divine discipline, in providing necessary trials to strengthen our faith, in, or, in order to make us stronger disciple makers for him. God is constantly at work for his glory and for our godly good, even in the worst of times. What are the worst of times that you've gone through in this last year? It, for some of us right now, the worst of times is this second. You, you, you even you struggle to get out of bed today because you're just so concerned. And it may not even be about you. It may be about someone else that you deeply care for. And it's just weighing you down. Do you believe that God is constantly at work for His glory and our godly good even in the worst of times? Yes. Okay, prove it biblically. Oh, let's let the text do that for us. Okay, let's get back to the text. This is huge. We can, listen, we can only be truly faithful to Him when we are confident that He is forever and always faithful to us. Right? That's the key to faithfulness. When we waver is we begin questioning his commitment to us. <laughs> That's when we waver. We, we waver because this just isn't, Lord, this pain is lasting way longer. This sickness is lasting way longer. My, my child wandering is lasting way longer. The economy's, the, whatever is lasting way longer. Do you care? Do you see what we're going through down here? When we stand firm as believers, it's because we know He is unceasingly and unwaveringly faithful to us. But how do we see it in this text? Oh, get ready. Here we go. We're going to close with hopefully... I should have brought my gospel glasses this morning. We're going to put on gospel glasses and you're going to see it in verse 2. That's how we're going to learn that how Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stood without compromise because they knew God was faithful to them and God was present in their trial. 
So notice, here we go back to verse 2. It says that God not only gave over King Jehoiakim and his people into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he also, did you notice this? this almost, you could almost just pass by this. He also gave over some of the vessels of the house of God, of the temple. They were taken to Shinar, and if you remember, Shinar was the place in Babylon these are fighting words. Shiner's just like fighting words. This is like the, taking your stand at the OK Corral kind of words. Uh, Shiner was where, remember God had said, I want my people to disperse and because he wants global glory. So God wants his image bearers to be everywhere in the world. No way, Jose. We're not doing that, God. We're going to get right here in Shiner in Babylon. You know what we're going to do? We're going to build a tower of our own to get to heaven. That's where this is. Isn't that interesting? So here's Nebuchadnezzar bringing all these things down to Shinar, to this place of battle, to this place of daring God, exalting yourself over the Most High God. That's, what, that's why it's, it just, it's just so interesting, the, the things the Holy Spirit includes in, in, in sacred text. Because it's just this fist in the face. So when you see that, that's what you ought to see. Fist in God's face. That's what they were doing. They didn't need him. They didn't believe in him. He was irrelevant. And notice what else he says. He takes the vessels from the temple and he puts them in his own temple of idol worship, which is essentially saying that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is no match for the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. This is essentially saying your God is powerless, your God is uncaring, your God is unfaithful, your God breaks his promises. In fact, your God is dead. If you're a little bit older, was it Time Magazine? That was the headline of Time Magazine years ago. God is dead. Wow. Wow. But that's not how Daniel understood it. And that's how, it's not how God wants you to understand. Daniel knew that God's house represented God himself, didn't it? It was not God himself, but it represented God himself. And the vessels of the temple represented God himself. So now let's get a picture of what's happening here. How does that help? How does, how does that help Daniel look at life through a biblical lens? Because God in Isaiah, you're going to go back, go back and look at where God told Israel, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into exile. I'm going to allow Babylon to conquer you. You're going to go as prisoners of war down to Babylon and vessels from the temple too. God was saying that he was going to give his people and himself. Remember that temple represented him. Those vessels represented him. Let's dig it a little bit deeper. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego knew that God was so committed to them that he would allow himself to be exiled too. Let's go further. Why? Why would God allow himself to be counted or pictured or understood as being defeated with his people, for his people, Why is God pictured here as essentially joining his people in exile? Why is God willing to allow himself to bear the punishment and shame that his people deserve? You're starting to to smell the fragrance of the gospel here. I hope so. 
I hope this brings back to your memory a passage from our study in Hebrews, and it's in your notes. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What an amazing God we have. He's a God so committed and so identified with his chosen people that he would give his only begotten son to be exiled outside of the city walls. That's, listen, you need to see that. If, have you questioned God's commitment to you lately? Have you seen Christ lately as your sin bearer? Because that's what's happening. Jesus is so committed to you that he's willing to to identify with your sins while never being guilty himself. He's so willing to be sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. So so he wasn't punished in the city walls of Jerusalem. He was taken outside the camp. This is where the cursed, this is where those cursed of God hung. Jesus was willing to be exiled out outside of the city of Jerusalem and and the temple was the represented the presence of the Lord. Jesus was willing to be hung on the cross, bleeding, suffocating, dying, being punished by the wrath of God as an exile from God's presence. Do you remember Jesus on the cross is saying, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Because that was the cry of someone who's been exiled and forsaken by God because of their sin. That's how committed Jesus is to you. He's committed himself to come into our exile when Adam and Eve fell. Exiled from the garden. Exiled strangers and aliens to God. And Jesus comes in and allows himself to be identified as though he committed sin himself in order to deliver us from sin itself. Verses 1 and 2 are a foreshadowing. They're a gospel foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us. In the eyes of earthly kings, fallen people, and even Satan himself, the cross was the apparent victory over God, the apparent victory over evil, uh, the, the apparent victory uh, of, of Satan, even, against the people of God. God's willing to allow himself to be the object of worldly scorn. Can you imagine? I, I, I don't mean to gross you out here, but I think probably in Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, I, I got to imagine they felt like throwing up to, to see their God being willing to be subjected to the scorn of being put into Nebuchadnezzar's temple. It was a foreshadowing of the God who would have his own son bear shame and scorn for us to save us. That's how committed God is to us. I hope this comforts your heart if you're questioning God's commitment to you recently. We we question God's commitment to us through our crisis. Precious ones, You don't determine God's commitment to you by your crisis. You determine God's commitment to you by the cross. Not crisis, cross. 
I like how Tim Keller put it. This is in your notes. If Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, and he's referring to the cross, why would he abandon you now in yours? I think that's a word for a few people this morning. God's willing to go into the exile that his people deserved in order to rescue his people from the exile so that they could one day be brought back into their truest and lasting homeland. The one who sent them into the exile was the one who promised to be with them there and ultimately be the one who would restore them from the exile after the judgments were fulfilled, after the discipline was done. God won't forsake his glory. God won't forsake his people. Even in the worst of times, God is giving grace to his people to live faithfully for him, to live courageously for him, to not compromise our faith, to not compromise our mission to make and mature, multiply and mature disciples. And as we will see, God will do all of that in ruling and reigning over every earthly ruler and king. I guess really you could put it this way. When things seem most out of control, it ought to tell us, nope, God's really in control of these things. And the cross is our proof of it, isn't it? You know, sometimes I just toss out. Uh, when, we, when we teach on gender, when we teach on God making biological male, biological female, what God's definition of marriage is when we teach on all those things. If, if God allows the world to keep going in the trajectory it is, you know, it's, it's really likely that you may have to come visit me in jail. If I go, I don't want to go obnoxious. I don't know, I don't want to go leaving people with a taste of what I'm against and not what I'm for. I don't want to go, I don't want to take stands and for you to be more aware of my strength than my love for Christ and my need for him and my desire that you know him too. Strong stands steel in our spine, hearts of compassion. Because the persecutors need Jesus too, don't they? Josh, would you come? And let's close this morning. Precious ones, I think that is how Daniel could live a life of such uncompromising commitment to God, such uncompromising commitment to his will, because he knew how committed God was to him. And even more, that's how we can live lives of uncompromising commitment to God, even in the worst of times, because of how committed God has been and will be to us in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We truly want to be people who are strong and courageous, who do justly and love mercy and walk humbly before God.
God, we have much to learn through the grace you give men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because there's not that much difference in the times we're living in, the times that they lived in. Please, God, would you fill us with your spirit to bring your name glory that would result in our godly good and maturing as believers and that many, many lost people would come to know Jesus Christ because we, we knew when to stand and we knew when to honor. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.